Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too, and I'll be right there behind you. Hey everyone, Randall here, joined by Mike. Say hi, Mike. Hi, Mike. <laughs> Today we're joined by one of my favorite podcasters, thinkers, writers, and streamers. His name is Matt Chrisman, and he is a co-host of the Chapo Trap House podcast, a New York Times bestselling author, and the voice of the Kush, Kush Vlog live stream, which my wife and I often listen to while we are cooking. Matt, say hello. Hello. We are Thanks very for happy. Me. Yes, of course. We're happy to have you here. So mm-hmm. we talked to Will from Chapo, um, you know, uh, man, probably about four or five months ago, somewhere around there. And like he mentioned before the King thing. I feel yeah, like. it was yeah. right around the same time. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and he had mentioned that you were a bigger Stephen King head than he was. So uh, recommended that we get you on. So so, yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit about like before we talk about the tower, I'd love to hear a little bit about your like King origin story. Like, how did you first stumble upon him? What was your first book? Um, I think my first book was Misery when I was in fifth grade, and uh, we were all supposed to read a grown-up book and do a book report, and I did Misery, and uh, as my book report, I dressed up like Annie Wilkes, and I reenacted <laughs> the foot uh, removal scene with oh, one man. of my classmates. I love that. And yeah. uh, you were you a fan of like Stephen King straight away, or is that something that came later? Oh no, it was like it's a t- like he, the way that he is able to uh, to paint a reality. You know, like you just you read it and you are it's cliche to say, but it's true. You are transported in a very specific way. Uh, I was I was gripped by, so I I, I kind of binged into him. I, I read almost everything I could get my hands on by yeah. Stephen King. I I, I was I was so like in the groove that I even ended up just accidentally reading like half a dozen Dean Koontz novels too, (laughs) who is 100% the Aldi brand to Stephen King. The Aldi. I love that. (laughs) We always, we always joke around with Aldi because I always feel like it looks like a set piece from like the movie contagion at some point. Yes. Just like their cardboard boxes that are on the shelves for some reason. I'm like, what is the deal here? Like, what are we doing? But anyway, it's um, great. I love Aldi and I'll stand by it. And uh, Koontz, we'll see. Uh, I, I like watchers, but um, are there any like early King, but like, or King books that you read that really stood out to you as favorites, like post misery, uh, the stand, I read the extended edition of the stand. That was, yeah, that uh, was my indelible. first one. Yeah. Uh, and, and the, the ones that really stuck with me though, like are, are the deepest claws, even more than the dark power, which came a little later are the 70 short story collections. Yeah. Uh, the, the just nasty, nasty <laughs> stuff, folks that, <laughs> really uh just is got embedded in me you know things like the jaunt and whatnot yeah so that's the bedrock and then uh when i was i think like 10 our family drove we drove a uh minivan from wisconsin to orlando to go to disney world and i had the first three dark tower books with me and i just read them on the car the whole way oh man so i just crammed it into my head and then i was like man i can't wait for the next one and then of course I had my before James R.R. R. Martin. I already had, I had my first encounter with uh, 
with getting blue balls from someone not completing a series that they were working on. Absolutely. Yeah, I have some questions about that. I'm going to ask you a little bit about later. Um, but are, are you keeping up with King? Like, what's the last King book you read? Uh, I, I have. I, I, I keep up. Uh, I, I read most of like the big ones. I read the uh, I read the Institute. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I don't read. I generally don't read like the like all the 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 cop stuff, like the yeah, the, the ins- stuff. outsider stuff. I don't really read that. I read every single uh, short story or novella collection because I think that's the strongest form. Yeah. Uh, uh, and yeah, I just finished this fact. I just finished uh, If It Bleeds. I read that oh, like nice. a month ago. Yeah. And I am going to read Fairy Tale. I'm going to read yeah. that one for sure. Yeah, we're working through that right now. We're we're doing an episode on it later this month, and and it's it's really interesting because it it it's it's identifiably a Stephen King book, but it's it's so indebted to classic fairy tales rather than I think his like Dark Tower, you know, horror right. oh, interesting. version of them. Yeah, it's a lot more like about you know queens and kings and castles and and things like that. But but again, I'm well, you know, uh, it, so. um. I the Eye of the Dragon is really yeah. good too. I read that as as uh, that was one of the ones I read. Yeah, this um, I know that that shares, is, you know yeah that 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 is like not quite uh, middle age, middle east or I'm sorry middle aged shit, but uh, <laughs> I think he does like courtly life very well, so I think it could be good. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's going to be an interesting one, and I'm, I guess I'm just really curious because since so many of his books incorporate. Uh, other books and kind of the larger Dark Tower mythos. I, and this is about, you know, an alternate world. I'm sort of waiting on pins and needles to see if there's any tower lore that creeps into this. Because, again, I'm still only halfway through. So it'll be, keep an it'll eye out be for Man in Black. Any, any black clad people, keep, please, well, uh, we got an APB out. <laughs> yeah, it's such a strange book because it's like it starts off with, you know, not to spoil too much, but it like references his own, his own movies. So you're kind of like, all right, well, we're not in the regular King's Dominion world. We're in some other like different alternate universe in a way. And then I'm hoping that there's a bridge here where when he goes into the fantasy land that, you know, maybe that's kind of the bridge world where we start getting into more mid world stuff. But um yeah, I mean, are you a dog? Uh, do you like dogs? Are you a big, big fan of dogs? I have dogs. I like dogs. Yeah. You'll love, uh, I feel like that's the easiest conduit into this book, even if you're not, because I'm not big on like a lot of the high fantasy stuff sometimes, but the stuff with the dogs, it's great. Love, yeah, it's, I, love, it's I love a heckin' paparino. <laughs> <laughs> it's basically a story of, of a boy and his dog. And I, I like to joke that he's sort of atoning for all the horrible dog deaths he's given us. Oh, over man. The years. Yeah. Yeah, we just yeah. did from a Buick Eight, which has one of the most brutal and prolonged dog deaths in in all of fiction. So, um, did you read a lot of horror fiction growing up? Like you said, you read Coons, you read King. Like, did you venture into other areas, or is horror like I don't know? Is no, it an important genre? I, I for you? did. I, I had a, a, big, a horror uh, phase. I, I was phased in and out. I like I would do lit for a while, and I would just only read about certain like Civil War, or right. uh, like I would read the Civil War, or World War One, or something. And then I would be like, I'm going to read all of uh, like the, the classic books you're supposed to read. Uh, and then like, I'm going to read like every James or uh, Elmore Leonard book I could find. Like, yeah, uh, man. Uh, so uh, with King, it was like uh, that led me to Kuntz and then the classics, your uh, your your Edgar Allan Poe's. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, uh, Lovecraft, because I one of the books I read during this period was Dance Macabre. Yeah. Which was I think is a really good, really uh, good book. Yeah, and, and we very, reference it uh, all the time. Yeah, yeah, a very a, gr- a great like, uh, just like, uh, wh- an example of how to like you know analyze culture. I think. 
mm-hmm. like through the personal lens and all that. It works. Yeah. Did you just devour like the Elmore Leonard books? So it's like, it's oh, funny because yeah. I, w- I was ready to go into him. And then we started this podcast and I was like, God damn it. It's going to be like <laughs> 10 years before I get to his books. I li- I'm dying I, I, to read them. Yeah. I literally got to the point where I kind of got sick. I was like, I was in the middle of reading one of them and I was like, you know what? I, this character is, I, re- I recognize him. He's the same guy who's been in the last 50 of these. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, you're not supposed to read them that way, weirdo. So uh, I put him away. But no, uh, Leonard's awesome. Love it. Let's uh let's pop over to the tower. You said you read them on a family vacation on a long drive. And I guess like, you know, were they later in your king development? And because, you know, I think for a lot of people, some people still don't even know about them because there hasn't really, I mean, at least prior to 2017, there wasn't like a film adaptation or anything. So so were these books like surprises to you? Well, I, by that point I had I had had my misery experience. So I was reading Stephen King books. I looked at him as he I, I knew that as like a brand I could trust. Yeah. And I saw the gunslinger and uh, it intrigued me. So uh, I started, I just, as it was just part of the natural progression of, you know, getting around to what I knew he'd put out and it just pulled me in so quickly. The first book was, it was perfect. Cause like it's such the first gunslinger is such a like seventies, like stoner, you know, like a uh, post Tolkien weed head type book. Yeah. Uh, and it, it really has that like uh like it smells like bong resin, the fucking. <laughs> and I was at an age where that was like, uh, there was enough cool elements to it, you know, like killing all the fucking slow mutants and shit to keep me like gripped, but also kind of uh, alien enough to keep me a little uncomfortable, you know, because I maybe didn't, I, I, the frame of reference was sort of over, going over my head as a little kid that yeah. made me like more interested into it. And so then, and I started reading a drawing of the three and like the, the uh, 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 the, he started bringing, uh, you know, our world into it and like balancing it out. Then it became this thing that I just, I, it was a world that I was uh, pulled to. Like I never got into any of the high fantasy shit. Like I, I read the, the Hobbit because it was a school assignment in sixth grade. I never touched yep. Lord of the Rings. This stuff, this is my Lord of the Rings really is the dark tower for me, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. I, cause yeah, when I was like curious if, if you were a fantasy head and how you thought it might square with stuff like Wheel of Time and Golden Compass and Brandon Sanderson and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I never read any. I read some Pierce Anthony when I was a little kid, but I never really got into uh, into the concept. I just sort of browse until I hit a vein and then I would follow the vein. And, yeah. and so like this was sort of it. This ended up being like, oh, this is like in the Stephen King universe. It was not part of like fantasy. Right. Uh, and right. the fact that like it spreads out into all these other books and is referenced in all these other books that aren't part of the same series it does really make it feel like it's not really about a genre it's about a guy it's about a guy like mapping his own mind yeah and then you going to live inside of it (laughs) do you remember the first time you encountered the tower like outside the books proper like for me it was insomnia i remember reading insomnia and i remember my mind being fucking blown same yeah when they're like what with i was like that's the most that's the most amazing thing i've ever seen yeah, I remember trawling message boards when I was young, because, like in that sort of dead space, you know, in between books. And everybody would talk about, like, theorize, like, what role is this kid from Insomnia going to play in Midworld and everything? Yep. And Another it re- thing people yeah. got annoyed with when it actually happened. Exactly. Yeah. It reminds me a lot. Of, I don't know. It's like, and this is something we, we can touch on later, perhaps, but it just reminds me of 
so much multiversal storytelling that happens nowadays, uh, now that it's very much in vogue. And but a lot of the discussions are kind of the same. Like when is, you know, because now it's like, well, when is the X-Men going to show up in the MCU or whatever in this iteration of it? And back then I was like, when are the wandering boys from Eyes of the Dragon going to show up in, uh, you know, Song of Susanna or whatever, which is it's interesting to sort of see that sort of message board culture become writ large. On, I, yeah. It's it's strange, too, because like I it, I remember in like the 90s, that was like sort of a budding thing, because even in the 80s, just looking back at some of the sequels in that era. I mean, you get excited sometimes when they when the, the franchises reference their own sequels. Now it's like mm-hmm. given at this point. And you know, in the 90s, it kind of felt like you were sort of at that crossroads where that was starting to happen. Like, I mean, for me, growing up, a lot of these sort of like connections sort of happened on the playground. Like you'd hear about things like sometimes you'd be like really right. Like somebody would be like, you know, this is in, you know, this, this, this is a reference to that and the connections. Right. But then sometimes you get some idiot that come up and be like, did you know that, uh, you know, Jason Voorhees is Freddy, Freddy Krueger's brother. And I'd be like, Oh, Oh, okay. And then I'd go, go on with that fact because we didn't have the internet to check up on it. So I'd just be roaming around for years thinking that was fact, but I just remember that's not true. No, it's not true. Unfortunately, I, I swear to God, I went like five years thinking that was the thing, and then I just uh, whatever. I'm a shameful horror fan at, the, at age eight, but um, it just was such an, a unique thing to think of the idea that these that these things could exist. These worlds um, overlap, and it's just yeah. we take it for granted now at this point. But yeah, like Matt, do you remember that that sort of you know like stumbling upon a dark tower reference in another book especially like once you got into the later books and so many of them became connected was it exciting for you or like to see all these connections with king's work or did you hit a point where maybe it felt like oversaturation well i don't know it kind of it felt like it it reached a uh it felt like a it reached a a satisfying crescendo because you had these first books come out in a regular relative regular interval you know the, the the gunslinger is an early book when i believe the when is the drawing of the three release like the mid 80s mid 80s yeah and then uh, uh wasteland is in the 90s yeah then but then there's this big dry spell then you get wizards and glass a fucking prequel that doesn't really say, advance the story much although at least like- it gets you out of fucking blame the mana which is like thank you fucking christ <laughs> i have been waiting here fan. with my bucking balls for 10 years if i don't have <laughs> a goddamn train <laughs> yeah were, like, was it disappointing or exciting for you to like go back with Roland, or was it prequel? Prequel? Oh, I was pissed. Like, I was pissed yeah. when it came out, but of course, once I start reading it, I didn't care, and I loved it by the end of it. And then, but then that's just it. Then all of a sudden, it's like he knocked something out loose in the machine, and they all just get dumped out in one huge uh, wordgasm. And so it makes sense that like that kind of psychic pulse would have a lot of. Uh, 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 knock-on effects and would end up like spilling out into everywhere everything else he was writing yeah it's like he was he was finally like all right i'm gonna fucking like split the atom here because he was stuck at the same place that all these guys are like like uh our like george r R. martin get where it's you created such a giant uh evolving world that to, to like resolve it is to like resolve life and how do you do that uh and then he decided to take the plunge and that's why i will respectfully stand for the later books even though a lot of people hate them because it was an essentially an impossible task mm-hmm. from for the man who can't end things it was the <laughs> impossible task and that it, it had a an energy i guess that carries that me through them anyway 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's it's so it's because by the time you get to those penultimate books and stuff, or especially like, you know, Song of Susanna or even Wolves of the Kala, you know, he's throwing in lightsabers, like <laughs> things from Harry Potter. I mean, it's kind of like I remember even reading it just being like, all right, what's next? Like at this point, you're just by the time. Yeah, you and then he seven, meet, and then goes. he's a character. Yeah. yeah. To exactly. me, that's like, oh, that's great. Like if you if you read the first one, you're like, oh, the, the Doctor mm-hmm. Doom and the Sneeches, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Getting to the point where they literally made him as a character, it's like, okay, that makes sense. That's a that's a progression. Yeah. Yeah. From this thing, like you're getting pulled into the uh, the cultural uh, like bricolage that makes up the the dying mind of this fucking boomer, <laughs> who is also the guy who like built the world that you're living in. Yeah, it's funny that it starts with Hey Jude, right? Like that's like the yes, first that real was the thing. Like that, when I first you know? read the book, that's the thing that torqued me because yeah. I was like, oh, this isn't some like this is this is Earth somehow. Also, mm-hmm. how does this work? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so interesting. I'm I'm excited to revisit these books because, you know, when I first read them, I was dimly aware that, you know, Stephen King almost died in a car accident in 1999. And and then he ended up writing that into the books, which, you know, I mean, I was aware of it. But now we've spent, you know, since we're moving chronologically, we spent a lot of time exploring what the post-accident books look like, like Dreamcatcher. Have you ever read that one? I've read Dreamcatcher. Yeah. I mean, that's a fucking... It's a fucking death dream, you know? It's like, and even when we talked to him, he referenced a little bit about like, you know, the bathroom is the scariest place when you get older, you know? And uh, and that's what Dreamcatcher was about, was like the sh- things that come out of your ass are the things that are going to kill you these days, you know? And yeah. Um, yeah, and so it's like, we've really been in this mindset of him grappling with not just the accident, but with 9-11. And I think because from a Buick eight, which is a book we just talked about. That book was written primarily in the aftermath of nine 11. And you can see a lot of like, I don't know, sadness and nihilism and, um, you know, the, the him reckoning with that question of like, what is evil and how do I deal with evil, uh, when it is so mundane, but horrific. And so he's very much in this mindset where he's thinking about death all the time. And I feel like that's why he wrote these three books, like boom, boom, boom. He had to get it out. He didn't want to leave it undone. Yeah. He was, I think, worried he would die and it would be unfinished. And he was also talking about retiring a lot around this time too. Like that whole near-death experience, like really, really, I think, uh, scared the living shit out of him. And it's, and I think what I'm interested in is once we get to the end of these books, which I think King even thought might've been an ending for him, uh, in terms of publishing his next book is sell, which is like mm-hmm. one of the most disposable, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Books. That's just like he, a, a thing he wrote on a t- cocktail napkin. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's probably like not he, wrong. Actually. He, like he was, would, he, would like he was having like, he was having oysters in like, uh, yeah. in, uh, in downtown, he's like by the Boston Common, just like, hey, what if everyone went crazy from their phone? And he just writes it down <laughs> by the time oh, the check go. comes. Yeah. yeah. Um, just, well, that's the thing. You have the big, you have that big, you know, Titanic, you know, dump, then uh, it's on the lighter fare. Yeah. Uh, the other reason that I will always support the the, uh, the later books is, yes, they have this energy, and I think we're kind of identifying where that comes from, that pulls them along. And I do think that he's... Uh, able to evoke uh, like real consistent themes about, you know, the nature of creativity and how it relates to uh, humanity and everything else. And then it ends in a way that I think is absolutely perfect. The, the ending of the book, the very ending yeah. is in my mind, the ideal ending, the best way to end it. It's like to me, the Sopranos ending. If you didn't like it, you're wrong. 
Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, do you remember like hitting that part where King jumps in and says, "Don't read the next bit." I yes, it and it's like yeah. it's so perfect because like he's trapped by the expectations of a popular audience. You know, mm-hmm. it's like you 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 cannot. This is actually like this is the this is the truth behind the veil that they keep from the regular people. Yeah, that like this just keeps going on and on because if you knew that, it would rob all of your petty bullshit uh, life goals of any of their residents and you wouldn't be a productive citizen anymore. <laughs> so you've been conditioned to hate this fact. You've yeah. been conditioned to be revolted by this knowledge, but it's true nonetheless. And if you want to know, you can keep going. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm like, you know, you sort of touched on, I think some of these ideas in it, like uh, about creativity. And I think one thing that's so fascinating about King is it's impossible for him not to get, kind of personal in his work. Unlike, I think, a lot of other contemporary fiction writers like Michael Crichton. You don't read his books and oh, yeah. I'm seeing I, Except Michael, for later yeah. on when all of his like crank politics started seeping <laughs> through. But the early ones, not so much. Yeah, see, yeah. that's the different. Crichton was sort of my way into, I think, quote unquote, adult fiction. Like right. I had I had a similar um, assignment in school. It was like, you know, read a grown up book and write about it. And for me, it was uh, Sphere um, okay. by Michael Crichton, which remains like, a book I adore. Oh, what's up, Mike? I feel like Crichton became like the Dennis Miller of fiction podcast, <laughs> fiction writers. You know, it's like at one point we're like, yeah, we were kind of with you for a bit. And then all of a sudden you're just like off the deep end. We're like, all right, you've gone too far. I, I, <laughs> I can't go there. You know, still love Jurassic Park, though. You know, although I don't know what I would reference for Dennis Miller than Weekend Update, but um, yeah. But yeah, it's like, it's like, uh, but Crichton, you never feel like you're like encountering him necessarily. Whereas King, or like same with like Tom Clancy or these guys who write a lot of the procedurals and the guys. Oh, I read Tom Clancy too. That was, yes, I was all about him. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, that's who King, I think, like the most we've seen of his kind of professional bitterness. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of it is aimed at Tom Clancy. He was always mad that Tom Clancy sold more books than him. But, <laughs> but, um, but I think he, Hey, learn how to describe the missile systems on a fucking U S aircraft carrier. Okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the thing though about King's work. And it's one of the things that I think is shocking that he's so prolific or maybe it makes sense because he's, he writes from the hip so often and a lot of it really does become about where he's at in his life at that time. And that's why I think our podcast like has kind of evolved into this study of one man, uh, sort of chronicling his various crises, uh, through fiction. And, um, and the tower, I think like a guy, I haven't reread these books in quite a long time, but the, once he writes himself in the, uh, to the story, what, I remember so vividly is what an asshole he makes himself. And, um, and when you mentioned the whole idea of him being this boomer, who's kind of looking backwards, that's something we've talked about a lot too, because have you read hearts in Atlantis? Oh yeah. Yeah. See hearts in Atlantis is a fascinating portrait of a guy who's reckoning with his generation, having failed to change anything in the world. Yep. Yeah. Swing and a miss. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And I think he and I think that's something he carries with him in a lot of his books is the idea that the world is getting demonstrably worse and we it's are moving on, baby. It's moving on. Exactly. And that's what I was going to say about the uh, Dark Tower books is I think that's one of the themes that that has always captivated me. Like I remember in Wizard and Glass, we see the old oil tankers that are essentially ancient, um, you know, artifacts, these Exxon tankers that have been out of use for so long. And that's so, and it's so interesting to think about this being a world that isn't that different from ours, but has, you know, 
moved on. And so I think that King's often considered, I mean, look at the stand for a good example, that sort of humanity's restless desire for progress will sort of be its own undoing. Like, do you think that's a theme that resonates in the Dark Tower books? Oh, yeah. No, uh, fucking Northwest Positronics. Yeah. And, yeah. The, the, the idea of, uh, of 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 the crimson king like the, the 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 abstract evil of it is so fascinating to me because it it really is coded as as an algorithm uh yeah. of of destruction basically like the the crimson king is uh, at the end of the book this like very deflating dis- disappointing buffoon because at the that. end <laughs> the human the human uh uh, uh oh, what do you call it the people connected to the machine right mm, like, yeah. like uh, at the top of it even uh, they're they're not vital to its function. They're just there to be driven mad by it, basically. Yeah. Uh, and then like to serve its will. But it's just this, it's it's this entropic drive to destroy uh, that is manifest in the machines that are built. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, it's I, I think that's so. I'm glad you brought up the Crimson King because I know one complaint a lot of people have is that you we spend so many decades reading about Randall Flagg and he emerges as an antagonist in this world and then he is dispatched in such quick fashion in book seven. Uh, and so and some people are disappointed because they're like, I wanted him to be the big bad, not the Crimson King. How do you feel about like the sort of Flag versus King sort of dynamic? Well, I think the king had to be a, a letdown, a deflation, because the 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 figurehead, the the embodiment of, of any like current like that, is always hollowed out by it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they they do not have anything within themselves. Like so, uh, so you're left with just this guy who uh, got right to the edge of the, of of the machine that he was trying to to destroy for his own mad reasons, and and in the course of it, just turned into a a. a, a like a, a Atari games uh, big boss. <laughs> well, that's yeah. We always we always joke that it's like Super Mario two with like yeah. the the thing that comes. But once again, you know, boomers. Okay, yeah. this is this is all the architecture of the mind of a of a dying American uh, uh, subject of of like the high modernist American idea. Like when when the mind really could be uh, unbounded, mm-hmm. uh, and and we an imagination could truly extend everywhere. Yeah, uh, that we no longer have. Right. I, I do think that's so interesting to consider sort of the king being this mad screeching thing at the end. It's it's kind of it, it fits perfectly, I think, with King's general idea of evil. There is yeah. a, a description I read, which is that. Uh, evil within King's world is powerful but stupid, you know? Yeah. It's like even the Institute, which you, you mentioned you read, like this is this Institute that is, you know, harnessing all this power and has these, uh, you know, dom- uh, these global dominance sort of goals and all this other stuff. But the building's cameras are like super old and they don't fucking clean the hallways, you know? It's like uh, they have all this power and they can control all these people, but they can't, you know, uh, ru- run a broom down the hall like they're just complete idiots yeah. i guess so with the with the randall flag thing though it is i mean i guess we could spoil shit right i mean it's, oh yeah, yeah, yeah we're, we're just spoiling. putting on the thing all right yeah so i mean i do think it is kind of disappointing that like you know he gets dispatched so easily i guess there's an irony to it that you know he continues to keep pervading through all the books and then all of a sudden he's just eaten by a fucking spider or whatever <laughs> but like i just i don't know i mean what did you think about that i mean did, was that 
I mean, we we talked a little bit about Crimson King, but in terms of Flag's demise, did you want something more from him, or do you think I it was mean, fine? That was kind of like a bah. that's probably that's probably the weakest part. I would say yeah. the whole Mordred uh, Flag thing, and again, you know, I you can't you you can't have a a, a large scale Stephen King project and not have some sort of failed uh thread you know some <laughs> yeah. something to fit some uh one of the fireworks failing to go failing to go off in the yeah. big finale like that's that's part of his charm honestly yeah yeah that's one of the things i why i always say needful things is one of the best books even though most people don't love oh god i love that ending love every it. Uh, fucking thread pays off in that book that is one of the most elegantly perfectly constructed Stephen King books and it's also a comedy which he told us in our interviews he's very mad people don't understand that that's a comedy so. no yeah Needful Things is hilarious the fucking movie's even kind of funny yeah we yeah. had a lot of fun with the movie when we revisited it we watched I mean, Ed like- Harris is on so much cocaine in that movie <laughs> it's like it's fucking unreal I mean like in the first five minutes he's just already on like you know, on 11 everybody uh, is fucking screaming <laughs> they go nuts he's like yeah exactly <laughs> Crazy. We always quote in the trailer, like which we use as a bumper sometimes, like uh, like Harris being like, "Don't you see what you've done?" Like it's so good. Um, but yeah, uh, words together. <laughs> Max Moncito goaded in that. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. If you feel if you feel it's too warm in here, give the word. I have a tendency <laughs> to turn up the heat. <laughs> Hello, this is Jason, co-host of the All 80s Movies Podcast, with a message from Factor Meals. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer, thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you will always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you will always have new flavors to explore. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Head to factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 and use code 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code 80smovies50 at factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Um, yeah, I guess like we're talking about villains, like what makes a good King villain for you? Like Leland Gaunt, like we're talking about Max von Sydow, who is one of my favorites. Uh, and then, um, obviously Randall Flagg, you know, you've got it, you've got Pennywise, like all these different villains. Like what are the villains that, I don't know, like, or I guess like, are there threads that connect King villains to you or, you know, is there one that stands out as one you enjoy? Um, well, I love his small town tyrants. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Big fan of the small town tyrant. Yeah. That was my one of my favorite parts of uh, Under the Dome. Yeah. yeah, the Rennie family. It's he's he's such a shithead. Uh, <laughs> yeah, easily yeah. one of the most hateable characters in all of yeah. King. Although I'm more partial to Junior because I like uh, King's bullies and psychos. Oh like yes, Henry also King. another another example of one of his finest archetypes: the thuggish, dim-witted bully. Yeah, I talk about it on the on the our episodes quite a bit. Uh, 
Henry Bowers from it is like my favorite character in all of uh, King. Cause he's just, I love the sort of Patsy characters, the ones who are, you Schmucks. know, so yeah, they're so <laughs> rotten. Yeah. They're so rotten that they uh, become these perfect vessels for whatever supernatural entity like sort of is hovering. Um, I think King writes those archetypes so well. Like when we're talking about archetypes too, like what stands out in King as something archetypal that I don't know, maybe you associate with him when it pops up in other stories or, I don't know, like, and I guess in the larger realm, like, what are things that are decidedly Kingian that you see pop up in, I don't know, modern fare? Well, I mean, obviously, if anyone saw Stranger Things, that's just like a slate straight ripoff of his entire vibe. <laughs> yeah. Like his entire deal is is just wholesale ripped off by those <laughs> those no talent Duffer brothers. <laughs> oh, man. What's your, what's your beef with Stranger Things? It's just, it's just a, it's a, fa- it's a, 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 a limp pastiche. It's like, look at, don't you remember all the, like, remember the cool stuff that used to make you feel good? Here's its most uh, vapid expression. <laughs> like, oh yeah, this is like Stand By Me. Is- <laughs> it's like a lot of things. No, I- I'd say like kids together, working together, mm-hmm. uh, and being oppressed by awful parents. Yeah. Uh, 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 yeah, small town tyranny. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, people, uh, the classic uh, person who snaps, uh, and I also—he's also very good on. Uh, he, he does the uh, like uh, two two personality thing pretty good. Mm, yeah, secret window and yep, uh, the dark half. Classics. We love we love those around here. Well, maybe not what secret about, window. But. What about his dramatic stuff? Because I mean, one of the biggest. I mean, not, I guess it's not really a hot take for us, but. You know, what we've learned over the last five years is just that his strongest flex is when he's kind of going for the tears, you know, like when he's actually kind of building up either a love story or when he's actually trying to build up like, you know, just a story about friendships that's going to hit you at the heart. Like, I like the green is that mile, stuff that you, yeah. yeah, like, do you ever gravitate towards oh, yeah, those works? Green mile. I read that in like the serial format, like yeah. oh, wow. the individual, uh, uh, I would go and buy them every, every month when they came out. So you've been in the waiting room for a lot of his books. Then. Yeah. With Dark Tower, Green Mile, were you like kind of championing the bit for the next, you know, book of the of the Green Mile? Or were you kind of like halfway through? You're like, all right, we need to wrap this up. <laughs> I didn't. I, I didn't really love the Green Mile. It was a yeah. little sappy. It's a little sappy. Yeah. Tower wise, when did it peak for you? What's your favorite Tower book? I think uh, the one where it all really clicked into pieces. Although uh, my friend, who just, uh, I have a friend who's who I was talking to that don't like this one. Uh, drawing of the Three. I th- oh no, is it Wasteland? See the drawing of the three wasteland. I think maybe the wasteland. I love the wasteland. It's for me. It's like so many good characters. I love Blaine the Mono. I love TikTok Man. We love, love the TikTok Man, don't we, folks? The TikTok Man. <laughs> he's, he's so big. He's such a big guy. He's got a big clock. <laughs> he knows what time it is, folks. The TikTok Man. It's such a perfect role for like John Cena. Um, yes. and it's such a bummer that like every adaptation has burned, has crashed and burned. And yeah, so I guess I'm curious that, did you see the 2017 movie? P.U. That's thing. <laughs> uh, I went with a friend who was another King head and we were in the theater and he said afterwards that he could just look over at me and every five minutes or so I would just go, Pah! <laughs> like what? But I like just, I, I would just reflexively scoff at what I was seeing on screen. Just the most dumbed down nitwitted garbage I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. Yeah. It's so frustrating like to try to, and 
as much as they kind of gave a lot of lip service to, and there was so many talks about like, well, how do we adapt this? Like Ron Howard was saying, we're going to do movies and we're going to do TV series and it's going to be a huge sprawling thing. And then of course it sifts through so many people's fingers and it ends up and we get this one movie that is barely even trying to establish, you know, I think a larger universe because it, it, it reminds, did you ever see the dark is rising movie? Uh, Susan Cooper from back in like the mid two thousands. Dark is rising. What's that? Oh, it's a book series by Susan Cooper. I loved it when I was young, but they they adapted it and made like the most, you know, piece of shit like thing ever because it's this like huge sprawling world and they realized they fucked up like halfway through. So they just put a definitive ending on it and uh, basically just said, we're not even going to try this because this is such a failure. And I think that's so much of what I see in the Dark Tower movie, which is this movie that uh, tried so hard to be like every other like YA uh, movie out and yeah was- they decided to make it some fucking perry jackson the, the fucking olympian bullshit <laughs> it's like exactly. i'm sorry like this is, is a little more it's a little headier than that man this isn't written yeah. this was not young adult fiction this is for grown-ups exactly i think that's so true like so i guess my question if you wanted to see a like is that something you would want to see as like a cinematic version of the dark tower do you think it's kind of unadaptable uh, I, I know. I think it could have been a series, and apparently there was it was going to be a series uh, yeah. on Amazon, and they they killed it. And I bet that it ended up getting killed because they were either going to be able to afford that or this fucking Lord of the Rings bullshit. Mm-hmm. And because Bezor is a fucking uh, Tolkien <laughs> dork, that's the one that they have. It's all personally just him deciding. Oh, I want to see that because I like this elf bullshit. <laughs> More proof that these guys suck because if he had better taste, he would have put all that money behind the fucking Dark Tower series. Yeah, the, the pilot's great too. We we managed to be able to see a screening uh, of it, and it's just it's it's so depressing because it's like a Pandora's box situation. It's like you open it and you're like, well, you're never going to see the rest of it, and now you have this what if in your head for the rest of your life, and it's like it's pretty dead on with it. I mean, they they pretty much were going for like the Wizard and Glass start with kind of mixing in with a little bit of the the mixture of the gunslinger and you could just okay, tell so like, this so, is going to work. So they're starting chronologically for early. Yeah. yeah. They're not yeah. going media rest. Yeah. Yeah. They, yeah. uh, yeah. And you've got Michael Rooker as, you know, uh, Eldred Jonas, like perfect casting. It really had a lot going for it and it's yeah. too bad that it, that it's not happening. But, um, but yeah, let's, uh, I guess like, I, yeah, I guess like adaptation wise is, do you look forward to Stephen King adaptations these days or do you think the the boat has sailed? I, what I want is new adaptations. What is yeah. frustrating to me is that it seems like all we're getting are remakes of, our, of, of things that have already been adapted, usually by much better filmmakers. Yeah, exactly. So like, it's like they're yeah. doing Christine again. They just mm-hmm. did Firestarter again. Do some shit that has not been adapted. There's plenty of it. Well, the good news is you just read, you said you read If It Bleeds, right? And Mr. Harrigan's phone uh, (laughs) is is getting an adaptation only two years later. I mean, it is kind of wild to think that a a story that's been in the ether or been in existence for like two years has already has a movie. And yet, and also, I'm sorry, if you've read If If It Bleeds, that story is like some fucking old man. That's some like (laughs) rest home mush. Right there, yeah. Well, the, like, the director of the Blind Side's doing it, so you know it'll it'll definitely go well. Is <laughs> this a ha- the old man's haunted phone? Yeah, I yeah. know it is such a, like, like a creep it show is segment. Such an, yeah, it yeah, is such exactly. An Maybe story. a creep show segment. 
like just just pondering over like the technology of the youths. Um, and if there's one thing I appreciate about fairy tale, it's that the main character is 17 years old and King basically just comes up with enough different reasons to write him uh, as if he were like a 75 year old man because he yes. grew up, he grew up like only watching TCM and all of his music references are all like from the 50s and yeah. 60s. So he literally you know just what? Reads that's not like, too outrageous because when I was a kid, I watched. <laughs> We had cable and we had Nickelodeon and I watched some Nickelodeon, but I watched way more Nick at night. Yeah. So I had a lot of mid-century ass references when I was a kid. That's true. I, loved, I, knew, the, uh, I knew the Patty Duke show theme. Oh, yeah. I knew uh, I was obsessed with Dobie Gillis for a while when I was young. Um, I remember okay, dressing I, up as Fonzie, I think, for Halloween once. <laughs> and uh, and everyone at school was like, oh, is this like Grease or something? I was like, no, it's Happy Days. And they were like, what the fuck is Happy Days? And I was just like so disappointed. It was like, how depressing. do you guys not know this show? I was so angry. But anyway. uh, Matt, I love your sort of insight into how things evolve. Like, uh, I mean, obviously, you're a student of history. I think you think a lot about how certain events shape and and cause certain things to evolve and so i guess i'm curious on your take on sort of the evolution of king as a cultural figure like what did his name mean to you when you were young and how would you say that that changed over the years well when i was a kid he was the master of horror he was like yeah. a hegemonic cultural figure and he stood in for an entire world and like i said i, I kind of just lived in its umbrella for a while and it and I, I would go and read other guys like, I, you know, was, uh, Michael Crichton. I read yeah. a f- couple of those, uh, read an, a fair number of Tom Clancy's. And I said some coons, but none of them really grabbed me the same way. None of them got me coming back. And so he's the only one who, over, as he's continued writing, I've continued following him. So uh, I, he, he took a turn when I was like in my late teens, when he was writing for the Entertainment Weekly kind of. Yeah. When he just kind of turned into like America's like affable grandpa or like uncle or something like, hey, it's Uncle Steve, guys. How you doing? <laughs> and it was like, oh, he's not scary anymore. <laughs> he's not spooky. He's just a guy. Have you seen his Twitter? Like, account? did you watch Sons of Anarchy this week? Oh, yeah, yeah. I was gonna say, like, you know like, what? what? <laughs> uh, the books have a different feeling to them now because I know that you were like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like one of the things I think we struggle with sometimes is we wish like if there's a reason there's many reasons to wish against social media but it's like when i read king's twitter account and it's just him talking about like blacklist episodes and uh you know how much he you know loved the latest um i don't know like uh spy thriller from some author who hey he liked heat too so that was i give him credit for that that was well it's just kind of like sometimes you're like i didn't i never wanted to know this much about your life and Mm -hmm. unfortunately you can just unfollow but we have to because we have this podcast it does show that yeah you live in a more impoverished world where you have this sort of intimate uh connection to artists they're supposed to be at a remove it's it's part of the magic yeah yeah Yeah. oh go ahead mike well is that something that you you miss just even beyond Stephen King. I mean, that's just something that the, the yeah, lack yeah, of mystery the general you know? dissolve yeah, yeah. towards this like kind of uh, wretched familiarity. <laughs> that's a yeah. great way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I think um, like, you know, I think Stephen King, the celebrity like Stephen King, the cultural figure is fascinating to me. I mean, this is somebody who, you know, in the eighties and nineties, he was ubiquitous. He was, 
was publishing books. He was direct. He directed, you know, Maximum Overdrive. Oh, he baby. did American. Did Express. he ever direct that? Yeah, movie? <laughs> he did American Express commercials. Like he had a band. I mean, like, and he was on every talk show imaginable. Like he was a celebrity beyond just a famous author. You know, he would act in movies. Like, do you yeah. think we'll ever have? But yeah, another- that's over. That kind of that kind of that position and culture is no longer available. Yeah, why do you think that? I mean, it's just the it's the uh, technological trend. There's no uh, nobody reads. Yeah, like in the short of it, it's nobody reads, and that's because we have be, be, uh, created a media culture that has requires a greater and greater degree of stimulation at all times than books can provide. Mm-hmm. Like we, they are now obsolete for the kind of brains we're creating by constant media stimuli. So <laughs> you, like you can't have a bunch of people reading books and, and then like having someone with that kind of direct like uh control over like the real estate of their imagination being one person yeah it ends up shattering into a kaleidoscopic uh array of 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 subcultural uh, uh and and lower overhead media ventures that everyone engages in as the system kind of turns into just this big vertically integrated uh monopoly uh, of social media and, and legacy, like loss leading media that will yeah. slowly go away until we're only entertaining each other. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, it's, I think a large part of it, I was thinking about a lot of this. Um, what was the award shows this week was the Emmys. Yeah. I, I just thinking a lot about like just the, the whole stand culture and just how like we've personified these celebrities wins as like these owned victories that we can, because we can get the endorphin kick of like being able to retweet it or like it and that we don't really even like consider the feats anymore. And I think that's kind of one of the reasons why we won't get like a King or even just a regular celebrity or maybe why Hollywood can't be run by, you know, have celebrity like led films anymore is because like feats and accomplishments, I just feel like they just don't matter anymore. It's just like whatever you can kind of, whatever's that's exactly that monoculture that you were just talking about. It's that like, if that's trending, what does it matter if they're really good in a fucking movie? Like it just doesn't matter anymore. I mean, maybe that's me just being cynical, but that's kind of where I've landed at the last few years. It's just that, you know, as long as something's trending, it doesn't really matter why. And you just kind of go with it. And yeah. I don't know, it's kind of depressing. I, that's a little maybe too cynical. But No, I love it. I also think like King is so interesting because he is the IP, right? Like, and we live in this IP driven culture. We live in this culture where, you know, movie stars don't sell films anymore. IP does. And Stephen King is somebody who has been some version of that, like throughout his entire life. And I guess I'm curious, Matt, like, um, like, why do you think Stephen King sort of had this big resurgence in a lot of ways over the past five to six years? Like, is there something appealing and or nostalgic about a presence like him in, you know, in the, you know, post-2016, I guess? Oh, absolutely. And I think it's it's a generation looking backward to the comforts of their youth. And Stephen King was one of those. Yeah. And so that's that's part of it. But also there's just the perpetual grinding acquisition and and regurgitation of existing intellectual property because it's that thing it's the ownership of the intellectual property it's the, that's the rent that is being sought by yeah. every element of uh the film industry and so there is a there is essentially now a limited amount of ip because no new ip can be uh have the same value uh it, right. it's, it's it's confederate money basically compared to old ip and, and Stephen King has a big chunk of our collective old IP. So he's going to come back one way or the other. But I think he's specifically coming back 
uh, as this return of like the uh, the Gen X millennial uh, childhood. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wrote a piece back in maybe 2017 or so for the outline about uh, Steve, about like the generation that grew up on Stephen King are the ones who are making the movies now. And at the time, I was pretty optimistic because I thought the Gerald's Game adaptation was really strong. I thought the first It had good moments. And I um, really like 1922. Have you seen 1922 with Thomas James? Yes. Yeah, we really like that one here because, again, it's an original story. It's told well. It's simple, low budget. And it's so hard to get stuff like that now. But sadly, it's like the same sort of thing that happened in the 80s and the 90s where the IP becomes so diluted um, that the works just begin to fall off. And I do think the the mark of that these days is not doing originals, like making Pet Cemetery again and making it worse and making... Um, I don't know. I'm trying to think of the other remakes. Oh, well, Firestarter because it's, again. Because and it's so it easy. Worse. It's just so yeah. easy to do. I mean, it's the low hanging fruit. I mean, that kind of goes with what you were saying earlier, Matt, which just like inevitably that's what they would do. Right. Because it's just kind of like, yeah, it's the it's the, the easiest way to slap on that IP and just kind of juice it for what it is. I mean, it's sometimes I see things getting greenlit and I'm just like, where is the end game here? Like, do you really think that this is going to have some sort of outlasting, like some lasting measure here? I mean, like. It, and that's all that could go through my head during the D23 Expo that was last weekend. It was just like project after project being announced, and it's all just taking one thing of IP and just juicing it. And juicing <laughs> did you guys it see the thing? The, did you guys see the, the 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 unveiling of the next Disney movie, the next Disney cartoon movie? The oh, the the one with the the Wish Upon a Star thing. Yeah, yeah. 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 Like star we have... that all. You ever wonder how the star that all of your Disney heroes wish that no i did not yeah it's ridiculous why would i wonder that we've bottomed out <laughs> at this point like and that's first it. of all i only think there's like two disney movies where they wish on the star right like pinocchio and cinderella i think i think so Who else yeah. wishes on the star that's two can't think of any no, no stars in bambi i don't think um <laughs> that movie is like two hours of like a time lapse of an expanding nebula like like some fucking like actual starving like forged out of stellar uh, dust, put that shit on IMAX. I will take edibles and <laughs> yeah. see it. Hell but yeah. if it's like about some chirpy little, how are you supposed to anthropomorphize a fucking star? I or like know. is it a human who like dies and becomes a star? <laughs> what the shit? So yeah. You said you want more. Wait, what were you going to say, Mike? Well, I was just saying, like, the idea, your idea of the IMAX movie it would be great. I'm just imagining Disney releasing, like, what was that movie in the 80s, that, that trilogy, the Koya Nazi? Um, the, Koya Nazi. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, if Disney did that, like, that's their new blockbuster coming out. It's like, well, we're going to bring this on, uh, actually, Christmas Eve. We're gonna this reminds me of movie. another infuriating thing that they did. So that Lightyear movie came out. Yeah. And I know everyone tried to turn it into a fucking culture war thing. And of course. Like everybody's, it was in everyone's interest for that to happen but i think people just like they didn't get it the concept was confusing and they kept saying they kept insisting buzz lightyear is this toy from a movie that andy really loved and this is that movie hey we're going to show you this movie that inspired his love of movies and your as the audience's love of movies please come back to the movies <laughs> that's the subtext of that movie uh -huh. but here's the thing i saw fucking toy story if you've seen toy story you know that there is an in there's a diegetic use of a 
of it. There's a commercial that is shown on television for the Buzz Lightyear doll. Mm -hmm. And there is no mention of any fucking movie. (laughs) It's not not shown that this is like, hey, did you like this uh, movie? Well, there's the character from the movie. It's like a commercial. It was like a Stretch Armstrong commercial Mm -hmm. where they're like, here's a doll who does stuff. He is an action figure. Here's what he can do. There's no reference to a fucking film. They fucking made that entire bullshit up. Well, you know, now they're doing uh, an It prequel called Welcome to Dairy. And I think that's how oh, we... Oh, What? Yeah. I know. It never I think ends. That's, never I think that's ends. kind of where we're... I think that's our wish upon a star kind of thing is like, didn't you want to know where Pennywise came from? And it's like, Come no. On. Like, we get that glimpse in It of whatever, the fire in the sky that comes down. That's all I fucking need to know about the arrival of It. I, like, I, I love when King talked about it and you just kind of get the sense that it was, it was very Larry David about it. He was like, eh. Yeah. Like, yeah, this, this could be that could be an interesting idea or whatever. It's like you couldn't even feign excitement for it. Like just could give a shit about that fucking. Series. Oh, did you see they were also going to do a fucking prequel to The Shining about the yeah. Overlook Hotel? Oh, 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 oh. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's been you scrapped. Wonder what happened at the Overlook Hotel? <laughs> uh, do I? Or do you? When I do, I got confused when Peekaboo happens because I don't know where you go. <laughs> I know, though, it is interesting, though, to watch Hollywood sort of bend themselves in in pretzels trying to take the most notable King IP and build, you know, what levels on top of it or below the fucking, it or to the, the side. The Shining yeah. Universe. The, yeah. that, that, that's just it. The, these are like competing archipelagos of IP. It's like fucking Universal Universalis or whatever, the, Europa Universalis or whatever you call it. Like yeah. you're trying to build like your merchant network of IP. And that means extending franchises out and bracketing them off like the business model was created like in the in the in the uh, post 2008 entertainment yeah. industry this is how it works you need to pool things together in these massive concentrations of speculative ip that can be leveraged and that's like everything has to be an extended universe so we're going to get yeah. a stephen king extended universe so we're going to get a thing about the origins of uh, uh what before christine was a car when it was a buggy <laughs> Just a guy in a car. It's just like a, a normal nuclear family just living with this car. Uh, yeah, that'd be great. Um, so if there was an original book that hasn't been made, or an original movie of a book that hasn't been adapted, what would you like to see? This is a good question. I thought about this. Yeah. Um, hmm. I really like... Um, oh, fuck. What? Oh, uh, yes, yes. I got it. I know... It's clear. You know what? No, never mind. <laughs> Damn it. There's so many of them. Yeah. Like for us, we always talk about how the jaunt, how awesome the jaunt would be. Yeah. Like, but how do you make a movie out of that? Right. Yeah. I feel like it could be a good creep show segment. Or yeah, exactly. Like, like yeah. you should do, bring back the anthology for fuck's yeah, sake. Bring back the thing is now anthologies are considered streaming bullshit. Like the fucking creep show yeah. uh, show, which is like, it's very janky. If you've seen it, it's cheesy. Yeah. Like and that's kind of the pain, charm and know? it's kind of fun, but it's like, it's more than anything. It's cheesed up. Yeah. And not in the way, I don't know, like for me, I couldn't get into it because it's not the kind of cheese of the original creep show where yeah. it's more indebted to like Tales from the Crypt and like those old kind of 50s comics that are so gruesome, but also so like darkly, blackly funny. I that's just the feel thing like, is that it's yeah. nastier. That's what, that's why I don't like the Sappy King because although I think it's just, he, when he hits a sweet spot, it's really powerful, yeah. but his best side is his nasty side. Yeah. I agree. That's the I mean, side he's wrestling with all the time. That's the side that like writes on his shoulder, that lives on his shoulder. The the dark king. 
Yeah. The fucking well, the Howard Stark or whatever his name is. <laughs> Will, Will had a theory on our conversation that and maybe you pulled it from you actually. I can't I couldn't I can't remember. But uh he said that because the Red Sox won, that's when he lost he became <laughs> oh, like <man>. soft. <laughs> that's possible. That could have totally taken a wind out. And of that's him. also why you get hit by a van. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think honestly, like we're in that phase now. Like I think he's in wrapped up in this sort of like like uh, weird nihilism, weird obsession with death. But I think he comes out on the other end of that. Like I oh, think yeah, Lisi's sto- yeah. Lisi story. Yeah, I think Lisi's story cuddly. is probably that way out of it and um and into the more cuddly king. But you know, there is occasionally a great flash of darkness. Like Revival is a great uh, Latter Day King book. Like Under the Dome has a lot of great Cocaine King like madness. Oh yeah, I've uh, got some real Tommy Knocker vibes for that. One. Yes, exactly. Oh, absolutely, and I love yeah. that. I love his ensemble stuff. But like. And he, you know, when we interviewed him, he teased a sequel to Cujo called uh, Rattlesnakes. And he he kept calling that really nasty. And he said it's very transgressive is like how he was describing it. And I'm so excited to read it because I'm like, is is 70 some year old King transgressive? Will it is it the same way that his early stuff was or has like his idea of what is transgressive? Like, has it softened so much, you know? And that's kind of like the funny irony about it all is that like, you know, growing up. I mean, I was always kind of under the the assumption that like the older the man, the the more meaner they are. <laughs> and so it's not like, you know, <laughs> I figured like you'd kind of be the opposite. Like, you know, at this point he'd be like, you know, his main character would be like shot in the head, like in the like page 30. And then, you know, and then maybe like at the end, the whole world just melts or something. I, I don't know. Just growing up, that was like, it was never the assumption that, oh yeah, the 75 year old man is going to be a nice guy. Like it's just, not how I was raised, I guess, but I don't know. It seems weird that that's kind of where it's been at at this point, but he's a very blessed, uh, happy man these days, I think, which isn't necessarily conducive. I mean, that's something like, as we wrap up here, like I, something I think I've, I've, uh, been longing for is the paranoia of early King. Mm. There was so much anger and so much distrust. Like if you read Firestarter, if you read The Stand, like he was very critical of culture. He was very critical of government. He was very critical of institutions. And I think that's what I've I've missed most because modern King, you know, uh, he's the ultimate, you know, Biden supporter. Like online. yes, exactly. Yeah, and he's he's, he's kind of the fire like fucking yeah. Running Man for Christ's sake. That book yeah. is astounding and incredibly yeah. prescient. Yeah, like even like uh, the Institute, I wanted him to go further. Like, like if this was written in the you know late seventies or early eighties, like it would have been much. It would have gone, I think, a lot harder on the idea that this is sort of a government-sanctioned program. You know, like he didn't go, he didn't make it the shop like he did in you know Firestarter. He wanted it to be this individual thing because I think he is a lot more hesitant these days to sort of criticize bigger institutions because I think, you know, he is that ultimate boomer who it all worked out pretty well for him, you know? Yeah. Like he, he think he thinks he, he needs those institutions to stop Trump. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So he yeah. can't really undermine them. I know. And that's like, that's, that's such the a trap bummer. all the liberals are in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's like, yeah, there's no criticizing the left anymore bec- or the, you know, yeah. Like uh, the actual like the Nancy Pelosi's of the world because we've got to stop Trump. And that's, it's like, so, and now I, I'm, you've read some of his later books. Like he's, he's talking about Hillary Clinton and in the Institute. If you read Billy Summers, he's talking about Donald Trump. If you read later, he's talking about Donald Trump. It's like unfortunate. He just can't really divorce that personal side of him from his work. And it's something that I think has, but he's always been like attuned to pop culture in all of his work. It's just, 
now it manifests in the most insufferable way I, possible. I, 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 I've thought about a lot of this, especially after we reread Hearts and Atlantis. And I kept thinking about my, um, my uncle who, you know, he was a boomer, but, you know, somewhere in the 90s, he kind of went the route that the same route that Carlin was in at the time where it was just, you know, the mistrust of any institution of any, any party was just gone. It was just yeah. absolutely gone. And this is a guy that, you know, was like, you know, burning our OTC buildings down probably. But like, <laughs> I, I just, you know, at, at that point there, you know, there was that, it was that, that guy, you know, who was just, you know, subscribing to all, all the different, you know, all these different like, um, you know, places and just absolutely railing against the, you know, the whole voting party system and everything. But then you get, you know, my dad, who's also a boomer and then, you know, switch parties totally. I mean, and then, so you, I, I do wonder if there's a, what if situation with King where he became more of the fuck everything. <laughs> I'm, you know, in that, which is kind of where I think a lot of liberals are at this point right now. I mean, at least some of them are. I mean, I'm not, I'm certainly not, you know, going on. Everybody is somewhere in the the stages of grief. Yes. Because we have, we have all come to the, like 2020 was the death of the, like the young end of the democratic uh, coalition's belief in the systems. Yeah. Uh, and like this, this Biden administration is the death of the belief in it in the older ones, like because they're finally saying like, oh, yeah, everything that I told myself to support this party is a lie. Like mm-hmm. they were supposed to stop uh, Roe versus Wade from getting overturned. They can't do it like that. They, they are they they can't they can't protect us, but there's no alternative. So there's nothing to do but like yeah. rend our garments because we can't move on because we can't accept uh, what's happening because we're so scared. That in the absence of change, something bad's gonna happen. It's like, yeah, it already is. Yeah, we yeah. gotta do something. <laughs> yeah. Um, as we wrap up here, I, I, our listeners love recommendations. Um, I'm, I'm curious if you have any uh, horror like uh, movies, um, books, anything you've read or engaged with lately in the horror world. Like, what is it that is working for you these days in terms of, I don't know, newish horror? I hadn't read any horror in a while. Uh, and then I read this guy. Uh, I think he's Canadian. And he's very pulpy. Uh, Nick Cutter. Has anyone yeah, read this oh, guy? Yeah. We love yeah, the, the Troop on this podcast. The Troop, I, I thought, was really that. good. I read a few others of his that weren't as good as The Troop, but uh, they were all, I was glad I read them. Yeah, I like The Deep a lot. Little Heaven I struggled with quite a bit. But. Yeah, that was that's pretty wild. That, that honestly feels like 80s cocaine king, like... <laughs> Uh, to the max, like uh, like yeah. off the rails. Yeah, it's got a lot of it vibes, but it just doesn't it doesn't work for me in the same way. But the troop is one of the most gruesome, like transgressive kind of nasty books I've read, and it's so hard to find that nowadays. Like we have a running joke on the pod. Uh, basically, we call it hug me horror, which we feel like is kind of the uh, prevailing sentiment these days, where everything, even a lot of horror, has to deal with grief and trauma and. All this, like, you know, you can't watch a Halloween Ends interview without Jamie Lee Curtis talking about how the movie's about COVID. It's or about trauma. <laughs> yeah. We're just so tired of it. I mean, it, it, the, the whole metaphorical monster, I just like pine for the days of having, like, I don't know, like a pumpkin head. It's like, give me a fucking Get it out of my face. Give me a literal monster that bites your literal head off. God, I, I just miss it so much. That's why I'm kind of excited for Hellraiser, but I'm just worried else at the same time that at the end, it's just like, well, actually, it was just, you know, it's my depression. I worry about what <laughs> like, modern, what today's TV writers will do with Hellraiser, but I'm going to go in open minded. So. Well, they already changed the dang gender of Pinhead. So <laughs> they've come. Committed, they've already committed violence to our shared cultural heritage. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh man, Matt, this is a blast. Thanks so much for talking to us about King. And yes, uh, always, always. Yeah, love man, to talk King. it's great. And uh, yeah, thanks so much for your time. And um, yeah, hope to hope to cross paths with you again someday. Certainly. All Bye-bye. right, man. We'll talk to you later. Bye bye. Bye bye. This is the end of our show. For now. Tune in next week. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, and more. <laughs>